0: As President Trump says, quote, this is deadly stuff, end quote, what a week. My name is Matt Sinovic. I'm the executive director of Progress Iowa.
1: And I'm Ivy Beckenholt, communications director of Progress Iowa.
0: Welcome to What a Week with hot takes about the week's news and shout outs for people doing good in the world. This week, we talked to Mike Baranek, the president of the Iowa State Education Association, during our interview and how back to school is going here in Iowa. And uh, spoiler alert, it is not going well. So we look forward to that discussion later on in the episode. Uh, But first, we start with what made headlines this past week. Our first headline is the big news of, I think, the biggest news of the week, potentially one of the biggest stories Um, in, in this election or certainly this, during this, uh, uh, pandemic is that the president admitted that he deliberately downplayed the, the threat of the coronavirus. Um, he said that he wanted to play it down to not cause a panic. Um, he did this and a number of other startling admissions in a new book, um, from Bob, Bob Woodward, um, um, and, and uh, where he agreed to taped conversations. So these are, this is not in dispute what the president said. Um, uh, these are recordings that have been, that have started to come out in advance of the book release, including one that we mentioned at the, that I mentioned at the very beginning of the episode that he said, this is deadly stuff. And this is on February 7th, a few weeks before he called it a democratic hoax, um, he was saying that this is the the coronavirus is worse than the flu. Um, so he made that admission in private, but refused to do so in public. So that's the that's the big news of the week, and it's just pretty darn infuriating to hear that he thought and knew that how dangerous this was, but was was saying something else publicly. Um, Ivy, did you listen to any of these audio tape uh, you know any of the audio on this or what was your what was your take on this this big headline
1: yeah I, I listened and it's just appalling because it's very different to what he was saying to the public and I mean right around that time, and even now, there' are still people who aren't wearing masks they're not taking this seriously they're calling it fake news and everything based on the way that trump has reacted to this virus in public by uh you know criticizing reporters and everything so it's obviously i mean to me it's insane that he would hide it to like you know not start a panic whatever he's saying but i think it's time for people to panic i mean almost two hundred thousand people have died in a few months from this it's ridiculous
0: yeah and, and we were panicking i mean in some level like at that time people were scrambling around looking for toilet paper in stores. I mean, you know, I mean, it wasn't like complete bedlam or anything, but like people were worried because they didn't know what was going on. And to have the, the president who has should, and apparently did have the most information and the best information, um, not sharing that is, is dangerous. And, and, um, really alarming and and really frustrating because we've all been living with this for months and months and months now, and he just what I don't like didn't want to disrupt the economy, didn't want to ruin his re-election chances. Whatever the case might be, he just owes us the, the, the full assessment of what's happening and we didn't get it.
1: Mm-hmm, exactly. And even since then, he's like tweeted, oh, it wasn't a big deal, whatever. Like it is a big deal. So we'll just see what happens from that. But on our next uh, big headline, we have the debate on Labor Day between Representative Abby Finkenhauer and State Rep. Ashley Henson. It was their first debate. They spoke on several issues. Uh, They highlighted the derecho uh, very well that occurred in um, Iowa 1, their district. But I think a part that was particularly interesting to me, at least, was their debate on the 2017 collective bargaining bill that Henson voted for. I mean, this bill took power away from so many workers. They couldn't bargain for better work conditions, health insurance. And I just found it insane that uh, Henson called it a great bill during the debate. That's not what I would call one. But what do you think?
0: No, I agree. I mean, it was a, it was a terrible uh, it was a terrible attack on um on workers and thinking about it today, um, with the discussion that we have with, uh, with Mike Baranek and the, um, the teachers and educators and education professionals that are going back into these schools, I mean, these are all public employees and I think it probably would be an, a great thing and a reasonable thing for them to be able to negotiate for their workplace safety in the middle of a pandemic. I mean. They can't. They, they. That's not required anymore because of the law that, that Ashley Henson voted for. And so these educators who we're entrusting with our children and asking them to put themselves at risk right now, they don't have a seat at the the table when it comes to, you know, negotiating a contract for how safely their or how safe their workplaces are. So it's really um, there's so many implications of that vote and that bill. Um, but that was, that's just, um, it, it's one of the worst pieces of legislation and policy shifts of the last few years. Um, I want to mention one other thing that from that, uh, debate that was brought up, but Henson was one of the people that voted to the lower people's wages. I mean, she actually like that's her part of her record is in Lynn County, her constituents, the Cedar Rapids area, like they, they passed the local, uh, minimum, minimum wage increase, um, and the state decided to rip that back. So um, Ashley Incent thought that y'all were making too much money, um, and so uh, didn't want the didn't want local governments to be able to um, to decide that. So it just doesn't. Uh, it, it's it's it it's mind-boggling.
1: Exactly. I mean, people can't live on minimum wage, even working forty uh, hours a week, more than forty hours a week. It's just nearly impossible to do that. And I mean, if you have families, then it's even harder. So it's just upsetting that she took that away, especially in Lynn County, her own.
0: Now we have a lot more news to cover and we're going to get into most of it, um, during the discussion with Mike Veronic. but we're going to move now into our, uh, hot takes where we give our, uh, quick hot takes on the hot topics of the week. Um, so first up really quickly is Senator Ernst. Um, if she just, you know, these, these revelations that we just talked about with Trump downplaying COVID and knowing more than he let on publicly. Um, it's Friday, it's almost noon and Senator Ernst has just completely ignored this. She's pretending it doesn't exist. So if it doesn't exist, Ivy, my hot take or my question to you, if it doesn't, if she pretends it doesn't exist, does that mean it didn't really happen?
1: You know, I really want to I mean, <laughs> it's just I don't expect anything different, I suppose, because she's ignored so many things that Trump has done. Um, but it's obviously disappointing. And I think it's just she really wants to align herself with Trump being his number one fan and everything yeah how, it's very rude to a constituents i think like just how, hard
0: is, yes. how hard is it to come up with an answer for this just i mean even even a bad one like she there's these CN, this reporter from cnn that we can like reshare these some of these tweets that that he's been putting out like that mm-hmm. that she's said any variation of like oh i haven't seen it to just flat out ignoring the questions so um I, it's it's pretty absurd
1: yeah. I mean, there's no way that this isn't on our radar. So right. that's just, yeah. But another Joni Ernst hot take is uh, this past week or so, it came out that Joni Ernst had supported a proven false conspiracy theory against Iowa healthcare workers saying that they may have um, falsely reported uh, too high of COVID numbers to uh, receive more money from the government. This has definitely been proven false. It's just appalling that she uh, even said this. And she has waited so long to apologize. And so far, she's only apologized to a board of directors of the Iowa um, medical group. So I just find it that my hot take is that she clearly does not care about the health professionals in Iowa. I mean, she just cares about politics.
0: Yeah, I I think it's politics first for her, first, second, Mm. third, and her constituents come. I mean, I don't know if it's dead last, but it's pretty down, down the list below the president below, you know, um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: cause it's not just medical. It's not just, I mean, she owes, she definitely owes an apology to healthcare professionals for mm-hmm. accusing them of this, but she owes an apology to all of us for like putting it, for even giving any little credence to this conspiracy theory um, because people are looking for Leadership and looking for information from their public officials right now, same thing with President Trump. If he's out there saying, oh, it's just the flu, a large group of people are going to believe him that it's just the flu. And when he knew that it was much worse, and if Ernst says this about doctors skewing the numbers, some number of people are going to believe that. And so that impacts all of us because then they're going to be out there spreading the the disease and and all of us are going to suffer more people are going to suffer as a result so she gives an apology to all of us um that's not really a hot take but that's that's my take
1: yeah exactly i mean she's just healthcare workers are out there risking their lives several have passed away because of this and then she hasn't even passed a bill in the senate a relief aid bill for coronavirus so i think quite hypocritical as well yeah
0: um Next, uh, Steve Holt is a state representative, um, and he says bizarre and inappropriate and um, things regularly. um, But he was quoted this week or the story came out this week that he said that the the United States is not racist, can be racist because President Obama has been elected twice. Um, My hot take, we don't need to go into too much of this. We'll, you know put put the link up in the story or in the in the in the episode uh uh, site here but but uh that that might that's not how racism works that's not how that works so i i just think he needs to go back to school on this so uh that's it's just frustrating that he's even in office um spewing this stuff but um let's not give steve holt more time than he's worth here so agreed (laughs)
1: Um, So the next big topic, which I think is very important this week, the Kardashians just announced the end to their series. Keeping up (laughs) the Kardashians. Let me tell you, I was napping when this was announced. I woke up about two hours later and I had several text messages saying, I'm so sorry for your loss. I was very worried. I was checking Facebook. Oh, my gosh, what's going on? Then I saw, of course, the Kardashians was canceled. I'm still grieving. This is probably the worst. Some of the
0: worst news I've heard. I I I guess I'm sorry for your loss, but I have never seen one. And I have to, like, add, I constantly have to remind myself, was there some connection with what was the reason that they're even celebrities to begin with? I know it's an extremely wealthy family, but what's, like, the <laughs> genesis of this? Like, I, I this is my, like, basically this has become the segment of the show where you get to make fun of me for not knowing pop culture things is it an oj simpson connection wasn't that was that
1: well i mean that's not why they got so famous a lot of it has to do with kim kardashian and things she's done but like basically she was just hanging out with paris hilton and things like that one thing led to another they got their own show and that okay. kind of led to their got startup it. but i will say i have converted some of my friends Some, not all to watching keeping up with the kardashian and it's completely changed their mindset on them because I mean, I know they say some things that I don't agree with, but they are like very entertaining. So yeah, I mean, I have no,
0: I'm not saying good or bad about them. I don't even just don't Mm -hmm. know. Like I've never, never seen it. So um, Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay.
1: I mean, the recent seasons aren't as good, so I understand why it's ending, but I don't know how I'm going to keep up anymore.
0: (laughs) For this week's interview, we have a great, uh, very special guest. Um, We're, we're, Thrilled to be um, uh, joined by Mike Bronick, the president of the Iowa State Education Association. Their organization represents well over thirty thousand uh, professional educators and education professionals. So this is everyone from the the teachers in the classroom to the bus drivers to the you know um, to um, all all the folks that make our schools go in this state. Um, and and so he and they have been. Really, at the the center of the state's disastrous back to school back to school policies that have um, put um, put far too many kids and and teachers and families um, at risk during this pandemic. So, uh, listen, I encourage you to listen to the whole thing. He's it's a, it's a great discussion, and Mike gave us so much time and information today. So we're really. Uh, um, pleased to have him on and uh, yeah up next is our discussion with Mike Bronick president of the Iowa State Education Association well Mike thank you so much for um, for joining us today um, for for what a week um, we are um, we're, we're very glad to have you as part of this discussion in this week's episode because there uh, just continues to be so much happening um, as it relates to going back to school um, so before we get into some of the more uh, nitty gritty details, kind of just give us a big picture. What has life been like as um, as your members, as educators, students, parents uh, ha- have been going back to uh, uh, school this last these last several weeks?
2: Well, thank you, Matt, for having me join your podcast. And yes, you're absolutely right. It has been a week. Um, our Our folks who are working in our buildings um, have been working incredibly hard to make sure that our students have um, come back to school in a warm, welcoming manner. Our educators are working incredibly hard to implement the curriculum while addressing the mental health needs of our students and making sure that equity um, is in the forefront of everyone's mind. Uh, Our educators, Both the uh, certified individual in the classroom as well as the classified, our support personnel, have been putting in exorbitant hours, uh, making sure that not only are the lessons prepared and the food is prepared, but that the school itself is clean and and safe and a healthy environment for everyone to um, work in. Uh, I've heard that there are teachers who have spent the entire weekend preparing and working 17 hours in some days because once a school opens, they're finding that they have very little time during the day because if a school is full in person, uh, there are schools that are requiring the students to stay confined within that classroom. So that means an educator could very well spend the entire day with those students because in some settings, the students are also eating lunch in the classroom. And so So, they're exhausted. No lunch, no recess. It's just all right there. Uh, Yes, of course, it depends on the school and it depends on the setting of the environment. Now, there are places that are getting any elementary grades, getting their students out to recess, but they have to stay within a confined area. I know of one school that has taken their playground and split it into three sections. And one group of kids has to remain in one section and another class has to remain in another section. And that makes it incredibly hard because students want to be collegial with their friends and develop those relationships. But um, educators are working to make sure that the positivity rate is as low as possible and uh, contact is at a minimum. But that can be incredibly difficult.
1: Thank you so much for that. I'm sure the teachers are just doing their best. I'm sure it's really difficult with the state's response. How would you describe the state's response in preparation for going back to school?
0: (laughs) Do we need a longer interview for that one? Which word should
2: I use? Um, Well... I believe that the metrics established by Governor Reynolds are very irresponsible. And uh, as you may know, there are metrics that are established for when a school district can apply for a waiver to either go to hybrid or fully online, virtual continuous learning. And those metrics established um, on July 17th through Governor Reynolds' proclamation far exceed what the WHO, and the CDC recommend. The World Health Organization says 5%. Um, If anything over that, then there should be strong consideration for students to participate in school virtually. The CDC says 10%, but ours in our state, approach 15% and 20%. And we're just very unsure where those metrics came from. And they certainly don't fall in line with what we are hearing from science. We fully believe that we need to be utilizing the scientific data that's out there as opposed to one's own belief system and arbitrary data points.
0: Uh, speaking of, I mean, the, the metrics on the quote unquote metrics, I feel like we've heard the governor use that f- word and. The, 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 these phrases about data and metrics over and over and over again. Um, I, I, there's been a shift um, in how they count students who are absent. And I mean, I, I, like, it, it, it seems like they're, I mean, they're saying the students who they said were going to be abs could be counted as absent now aren't absent if they're in quarantine or like, how are they counting who's absent? And like, basically is this like a who, dealing with like who's on first with the state when you're counting absentees? I mean, how how are like how would you describe their like their absentee shift switcheroo policy?
2: Um, it's very confusing for uh, a district administration and uh, school uh, personnel as well as the community. It, from what I understand now, is that if a classroom has twenty five students and those uh, students have a peer in their classroom has been identified as testing positive, that student will be recorded on the data system. However, if they also identify that there are 12 students through their contact tracing, have been in close proximity with this other student and they are asked to remain at home in quarantine, those other students are not counted in the absentee percentage and i don't understand that reasoning i can see where there would be two sets of data provided from a school the number of folks who have definitely tested positive but we also in our communities need to know how many students are in quarantine because if i was a family i would want to know what is happening in my local school district on how many students are being quarantined because that will help me make decisions on how I will then interact out into the community. And so I think we're doing a big disservice to everyone involved um, with our schooling of our children by not reporting out the number of individuals who were in quarantine.
1: Exactly, and, and i oh. oh sorry, you
2: go. Go ahead. Does I, that make sense?
0: Did I, did I explain yes, that well? I think okay. So, yeah, as well as it can be explained, I think. <laughs> yeah.
1: I think the data has been, I mean, throughout this pandemic, just very confusing. And we've been seeing different reports that the um, Iowa isn't even reporting accurate numbers. Instead, we look towards the Iowa COVID tracker and things like that. So I know that you guys are teaming up with Sarah Ouellette. Now for a new tracking system, could you describe to us like what you are tracking and to go along with that like why did you create it and what isn't the state doing?
2: Thank you very much. As as we have all learned over the course of the past month, the data that has been provided to us at the state level has not been accurate. In fact, they've had to go back into March and April and redo the data because it wasn't being tracked appropriately and we're still unsure if they have fully caught up with the missteps that they made prior and as we just had mentioned because um, we aren't identifying the number of individuals in quarantine the data that is provided to us doesn't seem to be accurate and doesn't seem to be helpful when making the appropriate decisions and so we've identified an individual by the name of Sarah Willett that is a data specialist and she had begun the process of collecting data across the state and developed a site uh, iowacovid19.org and um, we felt that that would be the best way for our, all of our communities to really know what is happening across the state and so she has developed a reporting system where individuals can go on that website and uh, can report that uh, there are these many students that are in quarantine, there are these many students that are um, uh, testing positive, the number of uh, personnel in our schools, adults who are testing positive, and then she checks on that to make sure that it's accurate data, and then she puts it into her system, and so anyone can go in and click on the state of Iowa map that she has and see where the, the breakouts are occurring and also see what the positivity rate is for each county in her state. And um, the data that she collects is private. Um, she doesn't report out names of individuals. And so we have found that this reporting system has been a very good tool for everyone to utilize in order to help track the information that's happening across our state. As you know, we have counties that are above 20%. Uh, Several of our counties, at a period of time, were in the 30s. And uh, our, our families need to know that. Our educators need to know what is truly happening so the appropriate decisions can be made.
0: I'm actually looking at the website right now. Um, it's really great and detailed and, um, if, and we'll include a link to this, um, in the, um, on the, on the site for the, for this episode, just so people can take a look and we'll be sharing, we'll be sharing it on social media as well. We, I, mean, I know we've been sharing this website in general, but specifically this, uh, schools link. And if you go to Iowa COVID-19 tracker.org, you can click on COVID-19 in our schools. And there's just a ton of great information here. So, um, that's really great. That I mean, it's unfortunate that you all have to do that because the state should be doing it. But um, we're really grateful that someone's stepping into that void. Um, so I, this week, I just just shifting topics a little bit. Um, but this this week, it it kind of popped up in the news that that some some school districts, uh, including I think Waukee, they've started asking students to get up and walk around every 10, 15 minutes to, to comply with some COVID-19 like uh, mitigation guidelines. What's the story with this? And it seems, um, seems kind of bizarre to, that this would be a, a fix. but is it, is, is it a fix and a potential fix, and what's what's going on with uh, students getting up and walking around?
2: Well, uh, Matt, it's an end run around. Uh, of (laughs) trying to report out the appropriate data. I'll, I'll try to explain it. If a student is in a classroom and they go get tested and they're tested positive, an educator, whether it be an administrator or the teacher or a paraprofessional, needs to do contact tracing. And anyone who has been in close proximity with the person who tested positive for longer than 15 minutes also needs to be in quarantine. And so if you modify your schedule to have every student in a classroom get up and move less than 15 minutes, then you don't have to report out the individuals or you don't have to identify the individuals who need to be quarantined because you didn't hit the 15 minute threshold. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's when... fairly it's pretty insane. I
0: mean, so when... they're just but then like potentially sounds like they're just sending them back into dangerous situations after the fact. Like
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And um... and we need to also remember if you send those students out into the hall and they're not monitored, then Sure. Students will be students. They're going to connect with their peers, and they're going to be in close proximity with other individuals. And so let's say that there was a student in a group of 10 that tested positive. The other nine students had been in close proximity for 14 minutes, and they were then asked to go out into the hall, look at the potential for the continuation of the spread of the virus with more students out in the hall. And so I've heard that there are classrooms that are doing musical chairs and having kids get up. If you remember that old game when we were in sure. elementary school and you shift around. Well, again, that is has the potential for spreading the virus and it's a huge disruption to the educational process in that classroom. I can't imagine as a third grade teacher how, how I would have to stop every 14 minutes to make sure that my students are getting up and moving around while I'm trying to teach a lesson, not only getting the content covered, but then also helping them to reach the critical thinking stage of where we all want students to be. Now, if I had to stop my lessons continuously throughout the day, that's a huge disruption to the educational process.
1: Exactly. I mean, I just can't imagine this musical chairs thing. How are you supposed to learn when you have to get up every few minutes? It's ridiculous. But uh, so I mean, with this musical chairs example, and just the fact that so many schools have reported that students or teachers have uh, had been exposed to COVID and had to quarantine, it's clear that, you know, students shouldn't be in schools the way that it is. What do you think the COVID rates and school guidelines would need to look like? in order to eventually send children back to school safely?
2: Well, I I want to state that the Iowa State Education Association wants to have our students in school. We want our students to be learning and growing and becoming productive members of our citizenry. But we also want them to do that in healthy and safe environments. And we believe that over 10 percent, in a community on a, on a positivity rate, 10-day positivity rate, or 14-day positivity rate, is, is incredibly high. And we need to be utilizing the data that's presented to us by our scientists, by our medical professionals, who understand what it means if you go over 10% and what that means to not only the individuals in a school building, but what does that mean for our community? Um, and so we believe that the metrics that have been established by the governor far exceed the limitations on when schools should return. As I said, we want our students to be in school. We want them to be learning and growing. Um, We understand that there are students over the course of the last closure in March may have uh, developed even deeper mental health issues, that there were inequities that came to the forefront. During this time, and the best place for kids to be is in our classroom. But we also want them to be in a classroom that's healthy and safe. I mean, I,
0: I think we all, or almost everyone, agrees with that. That that the best place, I mean, is just to have kids in the classroom. Um, but I, I just, want to thank you for. We want to thank you for stepping up and, and, and leading on this because it's not happening safely. So many parents are rightfully freaked out about this and, and educators going, having to go back in the classroom. And, um,
2: and I'm sure students um, are, are nervous about it too. Um, right. I, well, I, can you, can you imagine going to school as a young learner and seeing everyone in your building having to go through an incredible, Different process of socialization, a different process of learning. That you see um, individuals with uh, face coverings or a face mask, which they all need to be doing. We need to have a mandatory face mask uh, prot- protocol here in our state. But so, just the idea of of what that means to everyone in the classroom uh, is really disconcerting. There has been. Uh, folks, there have been folks who have said that young children can't learn to wear masks. Well, <laughs> yes, they can. From the, from what I'm hearing from my fellow educators is that it really is no big deal for a third grader to be wearing a mask throughout the day. They become very accustomed to that. Just like when we all were forced to wear seatbelts, which we should be, that wasn't an issue. Students now get into a car and they know to put on a seatbelt. Well, wearing a face covering is no different um, the one thing that I would like to just always share with folks is that this past January, I went into to the doctor to start my shingles shots regimen. And they asked me, Mike, did you have chickenpox as a young individual? And I said, I have no idea. So we had to do a blood test to see if I had the antibodies from chickenpox when I was seven or eight years old. Well, I did. And so I could then proceed with the shots. We don't know what will happen to our students if they contract the virus today at eight years of age, what that means to them 30 years, 40 years into the future. And so we can't know until there is more research being done, but there are indicators coming out from various institutions across the country that there is a potential for long-term side effects to one's brain, heart, lungs, liver, kidneys from contracting the virus. And so I think we need to not only be focused on today, but we need to be focused on what this means for our children in the future. And why we would want to manipulate data with the potential of having long-term effects on not only our students, but the caregivers, is very hard for me to understand. I was just talking to some folks in Iowa City and the University of Iowa is finding that there is a heightened increase in individuals who are coming into the hospitals for um, cognitive issues. And they had had contracted the virus a while back. And so they're starting to see some indicators that there could be long-term effects to the brain once you've contracted the virus. And so in this time of uncertainty, I just think that we need to utilize every precaution that we have before us to make sure that we have a healthy U.S. in years to come. No, I think
0: that, I mean... I think that's totally appropriate to share and, and a really important reminder because we get, I think we all, uh, to a certain extent we all do, but I think we certainly get bogged down in like the day-to-day like pieces of this where what's the response, what's the, you know, how are we trying to do this quote-unquote safely right now, like, you know, all these in the weeds type of things that that the news is covering from a day-to-day basis, and and of course, like you said, we see reports or, or thoughts of oh, could this be? What could it be? But but, it's just a really important reminder that this is that this could very that this very well could have long term and permanent implications for ever, everyone's health. Uh, everyone who gets it for, for their health. So no, I think that's a, that's a great uh, a great reminder. Um, before we go, I did want to ask. We did want to ask just for a quick for an update on the. Uh, lawsuit that, that you all are involved in, and and where that stands, and just whatever you can share, share
2: about that. Sure. The Iowa State Education Association, along with the Iowa City Community School District, um, presented a lawsuit um, uh, against the governor and the uh, proclamation that she had established and her interpretation of uh, Senate File 2310. And there were several parts to that. One was we were applying for a temporary injunction for school districts to not have to utilize those metrics, which don't seem to fit with what experts are saying. And we also have the central part of our lawsuit, which is focusing on the interpretation of Senate File 2310 and then the role and responsibility of the governor, as opposed to the role and responsibility of school districts. In the first round of this, um, we were unsuccessful in district court with our temporary injunction, but um, we plan on continuing on with our advocacy um, with this process. Well, uh, that, thanks for that update, and thanks, and we appreciate your
0: continued work, uh, continued work on this. We know that at least one teacher has has died from COVID. Um, in Iowa and um, and and everyone who's going into those buildings uh, to to do the great work of of educating our, our students is, is putting their life on the line right now or potentially putting their life on the line right now. So we're we're thinking about all of, every one of these great educators and um, and you all and just want to th- say thanks for for representing their interests and for um, and really for as you mentioned there's just so many different. Public health implications of this in each community that people need to know about because of what's happening in the schools. That you're really representing all of our interests right now. So thanks for thanks for all the work that you're doing, and, and thanks again for for being with us today.
2: Well, thank you. And as you had mentioned, Matt, uh, there was an individual in our state who had lost her life due to COVID nineteen, and um, as we have become aware, there was also one just recently in South Carolina. And unfortunately, we believe that these numbers may continue, um, which is very saddening and disheartening um, when we have protocols that could help keep everyone safe and healthy. Um, and so we will continue to, act, continue to advocate for not only our members, but all of our educators in our school buildings, the administrators, the bus drivers, the food and nutrition workers, Um, our classroom teachers, as well as the students who are in our charge, students or teachers and educators of all sorts are incredibly dedicated to ensuring that not only are their students learning, but their students are healthy. And we also are trying to work as hard as we can for our communities. Let's not forget that in um, some of our meatpacking plants, we've also lost individuals to COVID-19. And so this isn't just something that is focused on public school, but it's also focused on the entire community. Is there anything that, that we didn't ask
0: that, that you feel people should should know?
2: Yes. Well, um, if you had listened to several of the news conferences over the past few months, the Department of, H- the Department of Public Health had made the statement that children are more likely to contract the virus at home than they are in our schools. I don't understand how a Department of Public Health professional can make the statement that there is a stronger likelihood of students contracting the virus in a contained environment in their home than it would be in a school building of five or 600 children. I was amazed that that statement was made, and it was made several times. And so I think through our data that we're collecting, it's proving that point to be wrong. Well, and the the spikes or the
0: increasing numbers of young people who are getting the uh, who are getting the the virus um, now bear that out. I mean, I, I yep. so it's hard to match those up with match their claims up with reality. So no, I think that's right. spot on. Thank you. Okay. Mike, I, I can't thank you enough for, for hopping on it a little bit longer, but it's great, you know, great information. A little longer than I than I thought we'd take your time. So appreciate you oh, being willing to do this and get me Yeah.
2: Get me started on this Matt and I could talk for an hour and a half. There's a whole lot to hear.
1: So we have shout outs where we lift up great work happening all over the state. And please send your recommendations for the shout-outs to at Progress Iowa or at Potluck FM. So this week we wanna shout out hardworking students who are advocating for their health by uh, pressing for their universities to release accurate data or pressing their universities to move to online classes. Um, Clearly something's not working. There are very high rise cases recently, so just wanna shout them out.
0: What a Week is produced by Progress Iowa as part of the Potluck Media Network and would not be possible without grassroots supporters like you. We are mixed and edited by Greg Howenstein. For more information, visit potluck.fn. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to leave us a five-star review and subscribe. See you next week on What a Week.